0: Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, recorded in Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. I'm your host Dan Sally, and for our longtime listeners, I've asked Adam to forgo the standard intro music as I didn't feel me delivering a semi-snarky intro over Norwegian folk metal was fitting given we have civilians currently being targeted by military strikes in Ukraine and If this is your first time listening, welcome, and I would strongly recommend you listen to last week's episode with Ben Studebaker first, as it sets up some context around this episode, and you'll also get to hear the aforementioned snarky intro, so you can sort of have your cake and eat it too. Now, I'm spending a lot of time digging into what the current conflict in Ukraine means for the world order as a whole. And I'm exploring a number of topics I'll talk about at the end of the show. So uh, listen in if you're interested. Now, after last week's conversation with Ben Studebaker, I became curious about the role China could play in either ending the conflict or supporting Russia through the current round of sanctions. And I came across a paper authored by this week's guest. Andrew Small is a senior transatlantic fellow with the German Marshall Fund and an expert in China's relations with the U.S. and Europe. And in the wake of Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the sanctions that followed, Andrew authored a paper titled Ukraine, Russia, and the China Option, Geostrategic Risks Facing Western Policy which documented how the sanctions regime imposed at the time appeared to be bringing the two nations closer together. So I sat down with him this past Monday, which coincidentally was 12 hours after a story broke that indicated Russia had requested military assistance from China. And we discussed the changes in Sino-Russian relations since 2014 but also talked about how Russia fits into China's larger vision of its role in the world and whether we're at a point where autocracies and democracies may not be able to peacefully coexist as they once had. It is a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I think it's worth noting to the listener where we are right now in time and space, because it is Monday, March 14th, uh, a little before 10 a.m. Eastern time, uh, and there have been some developments in Sino-Russian relations over the last 12 hours that are worth discussing. But before we get into that, I I have to ask, you know, you're in Berlin, and just what's what's the mood there right now?
1: Well, I mean... There's two things going on in Berlin. First of all, this is much closer to, in one sense, the front lines of of what's going on. It's not the same feel that you get in Lithuania or Poland. But I mean, there are refugees coming to the train station every day. People are almost everyone knows someone who is who is taking people in. People are going and providing food. There's there's a very much a kind of direct sense of exposure to the war and its its spillover effects. It's it, it's very much felt you know across the public here. And there's a lot of fear, I think, as well. I mean, the sense of this is that unlike previous conflicts, there are scenarios here that that, that involve Germany very directly. There's, of course, lots of discussion around the potential nuclear threats. But simultaneously, you've had an almost revolution in German foreign policy approaches playing out in the last a couple of weeks in in response to to this, it's one of the moments in Germany's post war history really as an inflection point in in, in thinking on the German role, and, and and that cuts across defense spending, dependencies, the relationship with Russia, dealings with authoritarian states. There's been a, a really profound set of of changes set in motion by this. So people are both struggling with the domestic and long-term strategic ramifications of, of what's playing out. And then the very immediate question of the, the, the fallout and spillover effects of the war for Germany and, 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 and even on the German um, economy. And then what can you do to, 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 to stop this? So it's, it's, it's got a very live quality here, I would say.
0: Yeah, I think it's funny as I was, as this was all breaking out, I couldn't help but think of how a President Trump would have handled this. And and I I lay my partisan cards on the table in this podcast and, you know, his European policy was just absolutely miserable. So I don't know if there would have been the same unified front on the same token. I almost feel like the last four years in America, it's almost nudged Europe to become more independent from a military standpoint or from a foreign policy standpoint. I don't know if that's based in fact or not. That's just my... Observation.
1: I, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, I think you have, in one sense, there's the response to the immediate crisis. And there is certainly for a number of European countries, the Atlanticist countries are in some respects in the ascendancy. NATO's role is so critical. There's a lot that Europe can't do itself. The handling of this, I think, has been seen generally very positively in terms of how the Biden administration has dealt with allies through all of this. But at the same time, people are precisely conscious, as your, your question puts it, that this could have looked very different with a different president. This could look different again in a future crisis in a few years' time. So the significant increases in defense expenditure that have been signaled by by Germany and and others in Europe are also, in a certain sense, a nudge in in favor of the sort of strategic autonomy agenda. You you can't be sure that Europe won't need to deal with this somewhat more alone in future. And so I think that's there in the background, that's there in everyone's minds too, as some of these decisions are being taken.
0: I was actually very encouraged by the fact that the international community had such a, such a very quick and strong reaction to russia's invasion lurking in the back of my mind was the role china's going to play in all this and this is precisely what brought us together and doing some research i came across a paper you drafted right after the invasion or the annexation of crimea in 2014 and i'm really interested in getting your perspective on what the state of Russian-Chinese relations or Sino-Russian relations is right now and and how this might play out. Um, to, to give the listener sort of a baseline, though.
1: So I, I think the Crimea moment is an important jumping-off point. I mean, you can go back on a much longer arc on this The Sino-Soviet split, the two sides being involved in border clashes through the Cold War, huge levels of of mutual mistrust in, in a certain sense. And going into 2014, I think the conventional wisdom on things was still that that mistrust was still there. Um, and the I think the standard view was that this was a marriage of convenience, that there were real limitations to what the two sides would do with each other. And you had some very concrete examples with that. You had the energy deals that Russia wouldn't do with China, you had the arms sales that Russia wouldn't make to China, and you had all sorts of restrictions on China's economic involvement in in, in Russia. And I think the sense was still There were militarily, there were certain things that the Russian armed forces and and security services simply didn't trust. There's still levels of support and close relations that Russia has had with India in particular, Vietnam to a certain extent as well. Uh, Russia certainly didn't want to be bound into Chinese positions on all of these issues in its periphery. And I think there was still a sense that in the end, you know, European investment, westward facing efforts on on Russia's part were, were still Uh, I think, preferred. There was still some distrust over how the two sides handled issues in Central Asia. And you had running through all of this, nonetheless, a mutual concern about the United States, and to some extent, a mutual ideological affinity that you would get at the top leadership level. But it often didn't translate down the system. And so even when the two sides wanted to go ahead with some of these ventures, um, Power of Siberia, the big pipeline project, for instance, would often get kind of snarled up further down the chain. And 2014 was really a, in that sense. It forced in particular, I think, a Russian reappraisal, of some of the long-standing precepts that had governed its its approach to, to China, causes of mistrust, things like the question of you know whether China would encroach on Russian territory in the Far East and um, to take one of the obvious cases, whether the two sides were really at odds in, in in Central Asia, and to a certain extent a reassessment of the of the power realities between the two sides. what terms was it? worth locking in a partnership with with China on if China was going to be this rising power that was going to play an increasingly greater economic role in the russian periphery were the things to you, you couldn't resist this in a sense so what sort of terms were you going to to reach with china while you were still being treated as a peer on the chinese side but it was the sanctions of course that necessitated this it was the russians finding themselves in the aftermath of the annexation, and and not just the annexation, the subsequent actions that Russia took in eastern Ukraine that kind of escalated the sanctions further on on, on the US and European side, the men that they had to deal with quite differently in in, in the aftermath and and turned to China for certain forms of of economic support. And China, around the actual annexation, um, did played what looked like a very neutral role. It was extraordinarily careful with the language that it used. Xi Jinping was in Europe barely a few weeks after the Russian actions and still used this kind of almost contorted language to uh, try and make sure that they were not blamed for any form of support and yet didn't lean against Russian interests. Bearing in mind, I mean, there's been an agenda on the Chinese side looking out over a longer arc that says Russia is the only partner that can significantly augment China's global capabilities in, in in all sorts of ways. So China's been going through all these debates about as it becomes a global power, how far do you have to revisit some of the precepts around non-alignment and alliances and partnerships and things given that you're facing a United States that has this powerful alliance network around the world, global military bases, all of these things. How does China that had you know gone through for such a long time working to its advantage, rather to be able to have these kind of omnidirectional relationships. What if China needs to build a sort of a structure and network of its own? And Russia was kind of the big prize in that. Xi Jinping makes his first visit to Russia after he becomes party secretary. He's personally very invested in this. Then 2014 gives this kind of moment where Russia needs China differently and China plays it very carefully. They they pay Russia a certain kind of respect through this. They don't try to exploit the moment. There's a specific moment in which Xi Jinping tells the Chinese companies going in negotiating with Russians in the aftermath, don't play this like you're dealing with the defeated party. Don't deal with, don't treat it as if Russia's back is against the wall. Negotiate reasonable terms, bargain fairly, but don't create the impression as they had with for instance, Iran, that this moment is being exploited. And so in the period after this, the two were really able to build a different quality of partnership. Um, They start being willing to sell the Chinese um, their most advanced military equipment, particularly fighter jets, missile defense systems. They go ahead with an oil deal that they had not been willing to close before, um, and they start exploring a lot of other forms of partnership be- be- between the two sides. And, I mean, there'd been areas where the two sides are coordinated before at the UN Security Council, you know, where they do have these kind of common, in a sense, ideological interests. But they found that there were other areas where, if it came down to it, uh, in interests were pretty consonant. They, I think, overcame some of the s- mutual suspicions about how they were dealing with Central Asia. I think the Russians revisited their approach on, on-, on the Far East. And so you started, I think, building the blocks of something that has looked like a, a much more expansive form of partnership than I think a lot of people in 2014 had had predicted. All of the... Areas in which people had said this cannot happen. This would represent a new threshold that they're not going to cross. There are limits. They crossed virtually every single one of those limits, and 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 that then kind of brings us to the, the current context and and how Xi Jinping handled things you know, going into this 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 specific conflict.
0: You, you know, as, as I was digging into your work i got the sense that the relationship had changed and just to maybe reiterate what you're saying it sounds like it started out as a marriage of convenience or the phrase that popped into my head was best frenemies which might sound a little trite in light of the situation but that's that's just what came to me and it it sounds to me like to your point that that relationship has gotten much stronger and they've become much more strategically intertwined than maybe they were 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's very much driven at the top. I mean, when I was in Beijing, I would get these readouts of of meetings, even when when, when Putin was was there back in the, in the mid two thousands. And at the top levels, they got on very well. I mean, the poly, when we meet members of the Politburo Standing Committee and things there was a lot of shared agenda, particularly after two thousand and five, and was kind of mutual reactions to color revolutions in Central Asia. There was A lot of kind of exchanging tips and advice on essentially forms of domestic repression and and things ngo laws all all this sort of stuff but when you got further down the system there was then a lot of mutual mistrust and 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 you know these were the cases where whatever there was at the top the two sides up and down the system just to be able to translate this into anything. But then you have a situation in which you have two leaders with with, with Xi Jinping and and when Putin comes back, that are much more dominant in the system, I, I think, than than was the case before. Much more kind of capable in the late stages of of, of really kind of setting you know an ideological and strategic track that reflects their own vision of the world, which is not, I think, on either side fully shared up and down the rest of the system. But the fact, and we're seeing this at the moment from all the Critiques from various people on the Russian side and various people on the Chinese side to what each side is respectively doing. And there are plenty of people who don't think that what this amounts to is entirely in, in, in either side's interest. But the actors at the top are driving this. They had a vision that was in, in different ways quite aligned. And yes, it's primarily driven by mutual antipathy to the United States. But but this has now been something that has, over time and 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 as some of the prior obstacles have been set aside... Has 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 turned into some quite quite practical forms of 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 cooperation, which includes areas you know like joint like explorations of joint developments of weapon systems and things like that. Again, you go further back in time, and and that that's just not something that would have been imaginable either.
0: One of the things you mentioned too is this idea of China trying to think through the problem or the quote unquote problem of this network of alliances that the United States has. And so is this vision of a Russia-Chinese alignment, one where they represent another pole in the global economic structure or is it something else?
1: I think it's beyond the economic structure. I, 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 and I think you also have to look at Xi Jinping as a, as a leader simply not according the same level of weight to kind of pragmatic economic interactions with the rest of the world that were the kind of norm in the system before. I think there's been a view of the economy that says that in different ways it can and should be instrumentalized for the sake of Political power, um, military power, in in, in ways that I think the balance looked different going back, all all the way back to to, to the start of the reform and opening period. And so, what it's meant in terms of the, I mean, in, in many ways, apart from the energy transactions, there's not on the economic side a huge amount that Russia really adds. I mean, you can look at specific mineral exports, you can look at some food exports, I mean, there's, there's, there's bits and, and pieces there. But but for the most part, beyond the energy relationship, there's not a huge amount that's, that's added on the economic side. But if you're looking at this more through an ideological and military prism in the way that Xi Jinping tends to, then Russia is a real kind of asset in a certain sense for China, except for the risk factors that are involved in being seen to be closely, so closely tied to an actor that's willing to take all of the sorts of risks that we're, we're seeing in Europe. And that's tended to be, for, for China, one of the other factors that had held back its its approach to some of these kind of partners and allies. Because the problem, of course, is that the US network of partners and allies tends to be the most advanced economies in the world, the most advanced democracies. Yes, there are some kind of problem friends that the US has, but the, the preponderance of, of, of US power is vested in a whole series of actors that are not going to take the sorts of risks that if you then compare this to the Chinese putative network and you look at North Korea or Pakistan or Sudan um, or a whole series of these states that in different ways Embroil China and have embroiled China at different points in being kind of held accountable or culpable for certain problematic actions that they've they've taken. Now, I think it was confidence on China's side that Russia, you know, Russian military interventions had tended to be fairly successful. They'd seen Syria, they'd seen Crimea, and they had their questions about what China, what Russia had been doing in, in Eastern Ukraine, but they'd largely thought that the Russians' judgment on this was less risk averse than I think the Chinese one, but that, you know, they'd been pulling this off. I mean, there are plenty of people on on, on the Chinese side who see Putin as a kind of, you know, that's the bolder version of, of what they might wish to do themselves. And she has been willing to take some kind of greater risks on, on all sorts of fronts than, than his predecessors or or, or others and I think to a certain extent took a risk by by saying a deeper form of partnership with Russia is an asset when it comes to dealing with the totality of US power in the world. This this creates options, this creates certain forms of anxiety on the US side that are quite different from if we're essentially taking on the United States and increasingly a wider alliance network working with the United States um alone.
0: Hmm. There's a there's a question I want to ask on that, but, but before we get to that, I wanna, I wanna tee it up with my next question, which is in, in 2014, you wrote that a weak sanctions regime in response to Crimea could convince Russia to seek closer ties with China, which it did. But the second part of that was it could convince China to really take measures to insulate itself from repercussions of being cut off from the global financial system. Did that happen?
1: I mean, the the interesting thing about the sanctions measures that were pursued against Russia in, in 2014 and, and what's interesting about what's happening now too is you've kind of had this set of hops from what did you learn from sanctioning North Korea to what did you learn from sanctioning Iran to what did you learn from sanctioning Russia? And at each turn, there's been more of a willingness and use and application of these techniques to go after more significant and and weighty actors in in the system. And 2014 was certainly a point in which it was clear that some of the discussions, you you had to think to a certain extent. China is in the back of people's minds as well on this. You, You know that some of these, this is the first time that you take you use these sanctions against an actor of 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 Russia's economic scale, and you know, just with a very different position to what you had with you know, with any of the prior countries where this this had been attempted. There's, there's been a long-term question about the dollar system and the sort of the position of relative advantage that this affords the United States and relative weakness that it puts China in, in that you know, it leaves its companies stuck complying with sanctions, whether they like it or not. And that's just on the financial side. But what we'd seen beyond 2014, particularly with what played out with Huawei and uh, ZTE, was that some of the a more robust application of some of the technology restrictions as well can hit Chinese tech firms extremely hard. So the problem at the same time was China knows that there are steps that it could take to strengthen the position of the renminbi internationally the there's still been a level of caution on on their part about moving ahead with these because if you then look at some of the other objectives that that, that china has and that xi jinping has which include you know the rea- strong reaction to the stock market crash and the anxiety about capital being pulled out of the country the anti-corruption campaign that xi jinping was pursuing and and the concern that large numbers of actors on the chinese side were also trying to funnel money out of the country the view has essentially been you need to keep the capital account closed. You need to, if anything, further restrict some of the capacity to move move repatriate money or or move money out of the country in any other way. Foreign firms have been dealing with this, of course, as well in China. Um, And so you have this kind of wish on China's part to advance its position and strengthen itself, make itself more resilient in the dollar system. But the short-term stability imperatives have still made it cautious moving ahead with some of the measures that would would really be required to, to, to genuinely internationalize the, the, the renminbi. You've seen the developments on China's digital currency, which I think have been kind of one area that they've explored. You've seen developments in payment systems. You've seen a lot more of the kind of swap arrangements. I think they've prepared themselves to be more kind of resilient in in dealing with with, with these sorts of situations. I think this is certainly going to be something that we will now see with reference to the current sanctions and, and, and how China might help Russia maneuver. They're much better prepared for this. The problem, I think, is that... The, the will to kind of advance Chinese autonomy, even kind of autarkic positions on, on certain things has still kind of come into collision with the need to maintain sort of normal economic interactions with the rest of the world. And I, I think it's, it's been very frustrating for, for, for the Chinese.
0: The de-dollarization, or more importantly, the elevation of the renminbi as a global currency actually poses some threats to China and its ability to manage the economy. Am I hearing exactly. you correct there?
1: There are competing stability imperatives, there's a hit that they take either way. And for now, I think the decision has still been that the kind of the control element that is that there is by essentially by essentially by by, by by ensuring that the RMB is not convertible and that it's harder to move capital out of the, the country as readily is has been seen as preferable to taking the. Slightly riskier moves that would be involved, but that would be required to be able to really build up the RMB's international um, position. In some areas, it's gone backwards. the The sense of the need for it has intensified considerably. It it was strengthened after twenty fourteen it was strengthened considerably during the Trump administration, particularly at the points at which you started having sanctions hitting Hong Kong. I mean, there's there's, there's been a, a, a real concern that essentially China's defences against this are still very weak. I think it's going to Balloon after what's played out with with Russia now, and and particularly when you look at some of the measures that I don't think China had expected, or or frankly that Western leaders had expected to go after Russia's central bank, which which are the kind of the biggest sort of leap, far more important than than the swift sanctions and and things like that. that I think mm. you know to some extent had been anticipated. So I mean we'll we'll see what the response is from from the Chinese side, but but certainly the the. Xi Jinping's push is much harder in this in in this direction in general but whether it's the kind of if, if you look at the efforts to create you know Chinese autonomy in semiconductors has, is also just extremely difficult right now. That the, They know on the Chinese side that there's a gap between where they are now and where they need to get to to be genuinely resilient to deal with these kinds of advantages that, that the United States has. And it's a source of frustration, and there's a long-term goal, set of goals in mind, but I, I in, in some ways I don't think I've been able to advance it particularly quickly in the interim.
0: So that, that tees up my next question nicely, and something that's been in the back of my mind since this conflict started, which is how do you feel this is influencing china's calculus when it comes to taiwan
1: so i think there's th- there's a few different dimensions to this firstly clearly the western response in general was more robust than they had expected or again than any western leader i think had expected either so i mean we've talked about some of the taiwan scenarios with 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 people on the in 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 the US system where there's been this question of kind of could you really have knock China off their feet type sanctions or would it essentially be another version of the kind of Crimea 2014 sanctions which which precisely did not do enough to deter I think were seen as kind of sanctions that Russia could could live with and I think the 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 expectation on China's part was that they they that's what they'd be dealing with yes the Europeans may may swing in and, and things, but you, you'd still be dealing with something more modest. So I think one of the shocks is that there's been the willingness to go so far. And and so I think it creates a different kind of deterrent, certainly. And and not just a deterrent. I think there are people in the Chinese system who will be saying who were more cautious anyway, he'll be able to say, look, do we want to take this risk? You see what happened to the Russian economy. So I I, I think that that changes things at least somewhat. I think they'll take a whole series of of, of lessons as, as well when it comes to the kind of uh, there's always been this question you know the PLA hasn't fought a major war what level of experience do they have for 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 this Taiwan is hard to invade in all sorts of ways it's a harder military operation than sending troops into Ukraine They'll there was already a, a degree of kind of caution and question marks about this. Uh, there's a fair chance that this will accentuate those concerns, too. I think you also see the dimension of this, which is kind of how easy it is to lose the information war when you have a sympathetic government that you're you're looking to that the as as you have in Taiwan, for instance, right now and have had for 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 the last period of time so i I think you can see how costly it is to be so unequivocally the villain in the proceedings when when something like this plays out. You also see some of the risks involved when you're dealing with a language environment where you'd be sending Chinese troops in the way that you would be sending, have been sending Russian troops in to deal with, in China's instance, People, they claim to be their own countrymen in, in this instance. And, 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 you know, you saw that back in, in going back to Tiananmen Square. The Chinese had to rotate certain military units away from the capital because they didn't necessarily trust that they'd take the actions that the party wanted them to. But I think it will also depend on how this... Concludes. We're still, in some ways, in in the early days on this. So these are these are still kind of very provisional assessments. But I, my inclination is still to think that it will give more pause to those who thought that a kind of bold gambit, which is how a lot of Putin's actions have been seen in the past, is is something that makes the it, it looks like a kind of judicious calculated risk. I think it, it looks much riskier now than than I think it did before the invasion.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's encouraging because one of the things I've learned as I've started to dig into this is that there are certain things Russia provides that the world just can't live without and that it would be very difficult for us to cut off Russia from all trade. And so my question was, would a sanctions regime against Russia be able to do what's necessary to get to get the government or to get Putin to ultimately stop while a sanctions regime against China obviously is maybe the least of their worries based on your description of all the other complications invading Taiwan. Could we, or could the global community enact the same level of sanctions on Taiwan or on China? Should they take any rogue actions or would that be disastrous for the global economy?
1: So I think, if you had asked the question a few weeks ago, the answer would have been, ah well, there'll still be this caution, there won't be a willingness to do this, these are the risks. I think what we've seen is that people can surprise themselves in how far they're 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 willing to go on this. And and again, it's not just the actions by governments. The striking thing on on the Russia sanctions has been that there's a whole cascade effect in terms of how the private sector behaves as well i mean most of the the companies pulling out of of Russia and just writing off vast sums in in their investments and and, and things they're not doing it because they're being compelled to they're 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 doing it because it, it starts to become untenable to, to to maintain these these positions and so i think is it conceivable i mean of there are far more systemic risks to attempting to sanction China in the same way. So suddenly there would be cause for doubt that there would be the same level of willingness to go as far as the, the Europeans, a number of states in Asia, and and the United States have, have gone with China. But I think for, on China's part, there'd be more pause for kind of concern. I mean, that we tried collectively to to prepare a kind of fairly cleanly structured set of sanctions that would roll out, but then, you know, if 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 Ukraine calls for swift sanctions, people didn't necessarily think that was the best idea. But a certain momentum built up around that. Central banks were not on on the, the Russian central bank. I, I think was not as fully anticipated. And there, there are some of these things that just develop their own momentum. So I think China will be concern that you know if if one threatens that something like this might happen it, it could simply go further than that than people are even fully planning and gaming out in in advance but the other element is i think there are now going to be countries that say we do not want to put ourselves in the position with china in five years time ten years time that we found ourselves in with russia with respect to certain levels of dependency on for instance natural resource exports so I think, and you're getting that here you're hearing that from politicians in in Germany, for instance, very much at the dovish end of the spectrum this this is This is becoming a kind of almost a common sense position of, of lessons to be learned from this. if there were to be a scenario with China and Taiwan in the future, where would you want to be if you do end up with this kind of rush on? Sanctions, companies pulling out. What level expo- of exposures do you do, do you really want to have in that situation? Um, and and I think to some extent, although there'll be some conditioning effect around the fact that no one wants to go through a further economic hit in the middle of everything else that's going on, I think there'll be a harder look at what you need to, to unwind and create conditions that mean that if you do have to go ahead with a really serious sanctions package to deal with a scenario that seems in many ways quite probable and that China has threatened quite credibly, then you want to be in a, a more resilient position to, to do that with 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 less pain than if you were to do it today, so I think those is, th- those will be some of the moves that I would I would expect, not always publicly signalled, but I, I think there'll be a hard look, uh, and some of them already have been. But I, I think a lot of this would, would would take place relatively quietly to look at some of the exposures and find ways to to unwind some of them.
0: and that that raises an interesting question that's been on my mind as well, because as I've tried to piece together what's going on. You know, the, the one thing that's come to my mind is that what triggered this invasion or the trigger of this invasion were the Maidan protests in 2014. So when Ukrainians took to the streets and ultimately deposed, probably an overly dramatic word, their pro-Russian president, uh, and looked for an end to corruption, expanded democratic freedoms and so on. And that quest for liberalization directly threaten the order in russia and so it does seem to me as if a neighboring country seeking greater democratic freedoms in and of itself is a threat to an autocracy whether it be china or whether it be russia and what i wonder is are we right now in some period of time where the world's realizing that autocracy and democracy might not be as compatible as they have been, and they're going to start making some decisions about who they trade with or what relations they have uh, in regards to that. Is that an overly dramatic or overly philosophical interpretation, or is there some truth to that?
1: No, I, I, I think that's precisely the debate that's that's now underway, particularly on, on, on the European side, because the measures that one is looking at, particularly, I mean, it, you've had these, in a sense, systems intertwined and coexisting in, in in ways that had seemed to be mutually economically beneficial where there's been significant western marks about particularly in the interactions with with China whether that mutual economic benefit is is really there whether the whether those terms still work but simultaneously the question of how open should the 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 western or kind of advanced industrial democracies how open should that system be in all sorts of different ways to the capacity to access technologies advanced research but essentially being able to use money to buy legitimacy in in these systems and in certain respects constrain actions and and, and of course i mean in the more offensive operations really in some cases kind of attack the democratic systems them- themselves. China's been in some of these areas. Had been more cautious. I think you're rather getting a, an assessment that says we are dealing with a similar set of problems and a corrosion of our systems. If there is a level of kind of openness to, to 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 some of the actions that we've been experiencing and and certain structures of economic interaction between the two sides, where you you have one side that really wants to weaponize some of these asymmetric dependencies and 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 use them in ways that have a directly harmful effect on our capacity to reach democratic decisions there 's a whole series of these questions that don 't just become a russia question and I think the debate on on this does become much more a set of issues around how how do you have to interact economically with particularly the powerful autocracies that are looking to use um their financial and economic power in ways that can be in, in ways that are directly pernicious to your own political systems and that and have already in, in, in certain ways harmed those political systems, exploiting existing divisions, exploiting existing frailties, absolutely, but trying to exacerbate um some of those. And so I, I I see more of a rethink certainly underway about what that looks like. And and of course some of the measures that are being put in place in, in, in certain countries, I think it's not just a kind of person by person. Hit list of oligarchs or or something like that. I think this is also about a kind of pragmatic Adjustment to the way these states are behaving and if you don't make the right adjustments It will be a now It will be a much harder adjustment to deal with later when when you deal with these sorts of situations that we're we're currently experiencing with the Russian invasion of Ukraine
0: so final final question for you as advanced democratic economies start to respond to this and maybe start to take action in terms of how they trade with autocracies. How how do you see China reacting? Does China attempt to make good with the West or harden itself against any repercussions?
1: Um, I I think... It will mostly be the, the latter if, if, if Xi Jinping's approach to these things is, is anything to, to go by. I think the sense on, on the Chinese side has been, we're in a strong enough position to take this on. And we have it is still true that enough countries need us, enough companies need us, that we don't have to handle this by being nice about it. They're going to deal with us regardless and what's talked about as this dual circulation strategy and essentially making china less dependent on, on on the outside world in different ways but simultaneously making the outside world more dependent on you i i mean this is this kind of this question of the asymmetries of dependence is still a form of interdependence in a sense that that china wants but they just want those dependencies essentially all to go one way and for it to be easier for, for, for China to, to, to weaponize these against others than anyone can weaponize them against against China. And that's been the direction that, that they've been trying to push things in with, as we talked about earlier, in some areas, just the inherent difficulties of how do you expedite that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you end up cutting back trade or economic interactions with the outside world in certain areas you want to deepen them and you want to deepen those dependencies and you still want to be able to find ways to attract companies in certain sectors that will both advance your own in internal economic interests technological capabilities but also build forms of political dependence on the part of those companies and 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 the countries that they will then lobby as a result of that and i think the sense is still china's a vast market companies are not pulling out and they think they can kind of get away with the the approach that they've been been taking um and to a certain extent i mean this is going to be a very different kind of debate the the russia question is interesting because it it does rebalance the the question of risk if you're having to write off the sums of money that, that companies have been having to write off. I think that question comes in for China now in a much more acute way, if, if, if you think you may have to go through something like this in future. But there are going to be companies that just want to double down on on this and and, and, and are going to say, look, we cannot afford to miss out on the continued growth there in this market in the next few years. Um, and I think that's what China still, to a certain extent, counting on. They're a much bigger economy. They have much greater pull. It's much more damaging for for the outside world to have to pull back some of these interactions. And I think that's some of what will then be put to the test in in the next stretch, including the question of how far governments act to deal with some of the behavior of their companies that then expose them to risk, not just the companies, but, but, but the countries themselves. I mean, if you find yourself, because you've been pushed by certain lobbyists to have this kind of deep highly risky set of economic relations that then blow up in ways that can be incredibly damaging politically at at a certain juncture. That's a problem. And and in some of the cases this is exactly what one would go through in future scenarios with 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 China. And it's specific sectors that one would be dealing with. It's not necessarily an across the board picture if you if you look at how this is played in, in 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 Germany again to take the, the obvious example you know it's been it's been the auto sector and 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 things like that that have really been in in the lead on and pushing for a certain form of economic relationship so I think there's going to be real debates that play out between governments between public opinion between MPs and and, and others or parliamentarians and lawmakers and and, and some of these companies and, and and what they want to see in the next stretch and I think that's still a big kind of unresolved set of questions that's that, that that's still there with 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 China and, and what you know China will make I, I China will still hope that it it, it breaks in there in their favour and, and, and I don't think for, for all that there's this big revisiting of these some of these fundamentals of economic relations with autocracies and things, it, it still really remains to be seen how far people are willing to to, to to go because there's 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 genuine cost attached to it. And 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 people are already going to be taking a hit even on the, the kind of unraveling of the some of the economic ties that there are with, with Russia right now and in particular the huge hit that the, the rising energy prices are, are, are posing. So there will always be excuses to put some of these things off as there have been in the past but I, I think there is a different momentum to it I think there's just little sign at the moment that that beyond some kind of window dressing on, on on this that China's really prepared to do anything particularly differently I think Xi Jinping both in the dynamics with Russia and in the dynamics with the West I think the course on a lot of this is is is, is now pretty well set
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please leave it a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now, from this conversation, I get the impression a uh, Sino-Russian alliance countering the U.S. and Europe isn't in the cards immediately, and if anything, the global response to Ukraine seems to provide China with a number of reasons to remain a good player on the world stage and a number of reasons not to chain itself to the fortunes of Russia. Now, that out of the way... Xi's vision for China is a long one, and Chinese policy appears willing to allow time for the right pieces to be put into place before taking bolder action. And one of the obstacles to China's goals is the dominance of the U.S. dollar in the global economy. It's something we've talked about a lot on this show over the last couple of years. Uh, and it's something that allows the U.S. and its allies to enact crippling sanctions like the ones you see on Iran or North Korea or uh, now Russia. And there are signs that this movement towards de-dollarization is taking place. Uh, just this week, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia invited Xi to visit the country and the Saudi government also hinted they might be willing to sell oil and wine as opposed to solely in USD as they've been doing for the last 50 years. Now this would be a huge shift for Saudi Arabia and a huge change for the position of power the dollar holds in uh, the global economic system. Uh, and if you wanna learn more about that, check out the episode from April 15th of last year where we discussed the petrodollar system in depth. Now, I'm in the process of lining up guests to uh, discuss the de-dollarization of the global economy, Sino-Saudi relations, and I'm also gonna be keeping an eye on what's going on in Ukraine. We'll be checking in with Arjun at The Factual to get a feel for where public opinion is on the issue, and we'll also be diving in any historical parallels that might help us figure out what we can expect in the coming years. Next few weeks, are going to be interesting so put on a pot of coffee grab a sandwich and enjoy the ride as always the theme music we would normally be playing is courtesy of quellertac ydhty's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable admiral adam Yaffe. ydhty is produced in loving memory of the big geno jason putney until the next this is dan sally Ladios.